Let's open in our Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus and chapter 33. In our ongoing study of the life of Moses, we've come to Exodus 33. If you need a pew Bible, I believe that's on page 87. Exodus 33 and beginning with the very first verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promise on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites, Hivites, Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you. I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Stop right there. Wow. God said, I will give you the land, verse 2, or verse 1. I will send an angel before you, verse 2. Verse 3, I will not go with you. Can you think of any more devastating news? A more horrible announcement A shocking statement. It had been the mark of the people of God since they were released from Egypt that God was with them. The cloud made that loud and clear. The glory cloud that came down over the people of God went before them, went behind them to protect them, guided them every step of their journey, now all the way down to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. God had been with them, and now he says, I'm not going any further. He gives his reasons. You're obstinate, rebellious. And God says, in human language, I'm afraid if you made one wrong move from here, I'd just wipe you out. So I'm not going with you. How would you feel? Well, verse 4 says the people, when they heard these words, they were distressing words, they began to mourn. And they put off their ornaments, took off their ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. The word ornament probably refers to jewelry, trinkets. And these, these were part of the spoil that they took from the Egyptians when they left. Some of these they already donated to heat in a fire and pour into a mold and make an idol that they worshipped. That was chapter 32, the golden calf incident. But they still had some, and they were wearing them, and yet it was customary, whenever you would mourn, you would dress in sackcloth and ashes. You would take off your best clothes, take off the ornaments and the trinkets and the jewelry, and that's exactly what they did. I hope this is genuine repentance. At least it's customary. 
They're showing outward grief for what they had done. But how devastating is this? And that's the first thing I see in this chapter. God seems to be absent now, or is going to be absent, from the rest of the journey. And people are going to be crying out, why God? Where is God? How can we go without you, God? It's devastating news. The first half of this chapter is this idea that this appalling announcement has shocked them. They're devastated. They were punished for their sin. 3,000 felt the edge of the Levitical sword. And hundreds or thousands more were killed in a plague. That's at the end of chapter 32. But this is the worst punishment of all. God says, I'm not going with you. It's like Isaiah said, speaking for God to the people, your sin has separated me from you. And I've hidden my face from you. What do you do when you feel abandoned of God? What do you feel? What, what do you do when you feel like God has left you? That he has deserted you? Now this is not uncommon to feel that you are isolated and without the love and protection of God. I know theologically God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that is true. It's not theo just theology. It is fact. But there is this sense that we often live without God's presence. We're not conscious of it. Or sometimes even when we seek it, we can't seem to connect. The reason is clear here. They had sinned. And sin separates us from wonderful, intimate fellowship with God. But sometimes even the godliest experience this sense of spiritual desertion. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book in the early 90s called Deserted by God. He said that was a common experience with our forefathers in the faith. This sense that God had forgotten them. They felt without direction, isolated, and the great temptation when you feel this way is to turn in upon yourself. Woe is me. You sense the grief, the loss. And in the midst of pity, there's confusion. And you try to do this or that or the other, and nothing seems to work. But Sinclair Ferguson says our greatest need in that hour is to be brought out of ourselves and to gaze upon God. And while first attempts at prayer or Bible study may seem unsuccessful, it is the heart that continues to seek Him that will find Him. By the way, in the New Testament, when it says knock and ask and seek, those are present active verbs Keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. And sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. The best remedy for a broken heart that senses a loss of God is a fresh vision of the glory of God. In other words, the only thing that can really pull you out of this sense of abandonment is to take the scriptures 
and by faith see the glory of God until your life is completely transformed. The best remedy for the broken heart is a fresh vision of the glory of God. And that's why we read in Exodus 33 that the next movement in this chapter is the prayer of Moses, supplication, intercessory prayer. Now, Moses was a man who knew what it was to pray. We might say he was on praying ground, verse 7 through 11. They used to pitch a tent outside of the camp. It was called the Tent of Meeting. This was not the tabernacle, as far as I can understand, that comes later. This was prior to the tabernacle, but it was a place where anyone who had a request of the Lord could go outside of the camp. And Moses would go on a regular basis, verse 8. He'd go out to that tent, and all the people would stand and the, at the entrance of their tent when Moses went out. And when Moses entered the tent, verse 8, the Bible tells us God came down, verse 9. The glory, Shekinah cloud of God's presence came down upon that tent of meeting. And when they saw the cloud, the people who were standing at the entrance of their tents would worship. They would bow. But get this, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as someone speaks with his friend. This will be repeated in Numbers chapter 12 and also near the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 34. And Moses will be known as the friend of God who spoke with God face to face. In Numbers, the Lord says, with my other prophets, I speak to them in dreams and visions, but not with Moses. The Hebrew literally is mouth to mouth. That is intimate, close fellowship. It's a Hebrew idiom that speaks of this transparent openness. And that's what Moses experienced. No one knew the presence of God like Moses. And so he begins to pray. By the way, find some good prayer warriors. Find some people who know how to get into the presence of God. Find some people who spend time face to face with God and in, elicit them as your prayer warriors. Encourage them to be on your prayer team. Ask them to pray for you. Now Moses comes into the presence of God with two requests. Here's the first one, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Now in verse 2, he said he was going to send an angel, but verse 2 says the angel would go before them. Moses understood that was a replacement. It wasn't the presence of God. He wants God to go with them. That's what he's saying. He says, Lord, you said I know you, Moses, by name, and you found favor with me. Verse 13, here's a request. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I might know you and continue to find your favor. Remember that this nation is your people. Request number one, teach me your ways. Now, if anyone knew the ways of, Moses, uh, of God, would it not be Moses? 
He's the one on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. He's the one who followed up in chapter 21 through chapter 23 with all the regulations that God laid down. Moses is the one who mediates God's will to the people. If anyone knew the ways of God, it was Moses. But here's a request that God would go with them to guide and teach them every step of the way. Moses wants to know the ways of God more fully. Perhaps in this request is the thought, Lord, I thought you said you were going to go with us. You're going to have to teach me your ways because I don't understand this. This is a great prayer for us when we feel like God has abandoned us. Lord, teach me your ways so that I might know you. Following the ways of God always leads to a more intimate knowledge of God. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, the Father and I will disclose ourselves to you. We will reveal ourselves to you. How do you get to know God? Keep his commandments. You've got to know and obey. That's the prayer of Moses. It's not that he was the one living in sin, although he identified with the people who had sinned. He talks about our sin. But Moses is the one who wants to go further in an understanding of God. I've tasted how great you are, and because I've tasted that, I want more. And so he presses on. Teach me your ways. Sounds like the Apostle Paul, who probably knew God better than anyone else in the New Testament, but Paul prayed that I might know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings I want to know you more. This is a request for the return of the presence. And God responds, verse 14, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The opposite is stress, which is what happens when we live our lives without the presence of God. Moses, I will go with you. My presence will be with you. And in verse 15, Moses said to him, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up. How will anyone know that you're pleased with us, pleased with me and the people, if you don't go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth except your presence? And the Lord says to Moses, I will do the very thing you ask. And so God responds in mercy and grace to give to Moses insight into his ways. We as a church just recently voted to expand our facility here for the the focus is a course on outreach to be able to handle those who are coming and future growth as well. And our prayer all along was, Lord, if this is not your will, don't take us forward. Let us not move unless you go with us. That ought to be the prayer of our daily lives. As you you start out the tasks and and uh, face the difficulties, the challenges of the day, Lord, don't let me go unless you go with me. Totally submitted to the will of God. And God said, I'm going to go with you. My presence will 
go with you. Verse 14. I will be in residence among the people of God as you journey north to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And it was the cloud that symbolized the presence of God. It was the cloud that would return and lead and hover over them. It was like a a flag announcing to the world, the sovereign God is here. I, I read that all the way until 1997, there was only one flag that flew over Buckingham Palace. It was the royal standard, and it would only fly when the royals were living in Buckingham Palace, when they were in residence there. If they would go on a journey uh, to Ballymore Castle, the flag would come down. In fact, when Princess Diana died, they were criticized for not putting the flag at half-mast, but there was no flag flying because they weren't home. When they returned home, the flag would go up. The royals are in residence. And what distinguishes us from the rest of the world is this sense of the presence of God, this understanding that God is here. I would love it if it was a visible cloud, but we don't have that. But what we do need when we assemble and when we go forth to follow the will of God is the cloud present and the cloud leading. And we need to say, Lord, if you don't go with us, we're not going. The Lord is here because he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord is here because he said where two or three gather together, he would be in the midst. But do you sense that the Lord is here? What I prayed for this week is that God would give us a felt sense of his presence. That that is that we would truly know that he was here. It's possible that God could be here and you wouldn't know it. Jacob said the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. It's possible for you to come in and leave and sense, you know, that wasn't much of a worship service. And someone else you run into says, wasn't that great? God was here. He spoke to my heart. Oh, I'm so filled with joy. And you wonder, where was I? That's a good question. Where were you? You're here, but you're not here. God is here, but do you know he's here? God's with you, but is his blessed presence guiding you because he's pleased with you and you're surrendered to him? Lord, teach me your ways. The second prayer of Moses is verse 18. Lord, show me your glory. The best remedy for a broken heart is a fresh vision of the glory of God. Lord, show me your glory. Moses had just been through a lot with the people of God in chapter 32. Judgment, discouragement, disappointment. And now to hear that God was saying he wouldn't go with them, Lord, show me your glory. You've got to go with us. And I need a fresh vision of who you are. And so the Lord says, okay, verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now, if I understand that properly, the definition of the glory of God is the goodness of God. 
and the character of God proclaimed in the name of God, which refers to all those attributes that are true of him. But especially his goodness. If I were to define the glory of God, I might start out by saying, well, the Hebrew word means weighty, something of significance, something that has gravitas to it. I might also add that the glory of God seen in the pages of Scripture always speaks of a bright light like the sun. But God says, let me tell you what my glory is. It's my goodness. That's my glory. And my goodness has connected to all my other attributes that are described by that simple name, Jehovah. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But Moses, verse 20, you cannot see my face because no one can see me unfiltered and live. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He saw the garment of the, of the Lord, the royal garment, that's all. In chapter 24, we're told that Moses and the leaders of Israel saw God But when you study that section in detail, you see that probably what they saw was the pavement upon which he stood and the glory that just overcame that place. No one can see my face and live. Verse 21, the Lord said, There is a place near where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now remember, this is, a, this is another anthropomorphism. This is trying to put truth about God into human language so that we can somehow comprehend it. God doesn't have a face. But it's as though he's passing by and Moses will be protected until he can view where God has been or the back part of his glory. By the way, this is where that inspiration came for William Cushing, to give us that great hymn, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He covers, he hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. God is protecting Moses only to reveal to Moses his great goodness. And that's what he does in chapter 34. Let's jump there just quickly. In verse 4, Moses chiseled out two new stones. By the way, that's grace. This is the second edition of the Ten Commandments. The first were broken because of sin. Now here's a second edition. Same thing is going to be written on it, but it's grace that God renews his covenant and offers them the Ten Commandments in stone. Verse 5, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses And proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, who is this Lord, Jehovah Yahweh? He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love or goodness. He is faithful, maintains love to thousands, forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. Boy, they were glad to hear that. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. If there's no repentance, 
there is judgment. And 32, chapter 32 tells us that. In fact, his punishment even goes to children, to the children, to the third and fourth generation, which is a Semitic idiom that simply means there is continuance of the consequence. You sin today, it continues to have its effect on future generations. No one sins unto themselves. But Moses, I want you to know that my goodness is abundant goodness in love and mercy and grace. If you've never read the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, let me encourage you to pick up a copy and read it. In that book, Packer describes this scene with these words. Goodness means something admirable, attractive, praiseworthy. When the biblical writers in Exodus 34 call God good, they're thinking in general of all those moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect. And in particular, of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful, gracious, loving. Packer picks out of all of this, this focus on generosity, which comes from that word abounding in verse 6. He goes on to say generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive. It's not limited by what the recipient deserves but instead consistently goes beyond that. It's overflowing goodness. Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. And generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. This little portion of Scripture in chapter 34 is kind of like theology proper 101. It's the basics. And it's going to be repeated in the book of Nehemiah and repeated in the book of Numbers and repeated in the book of Jonah because here is a wonderful description of the glory of God. It's bound up in His goodness. Yeah, Moses, you can see my glory, and here it is. Mercy and grace and forgiveness. Judgment to those who don't turn. Wonderful acceptance and forgiveness and restoration to those who do. And Moses bowed to the ground and worshipped. Verse 8. Now the Lord gave to Moses other regulations, requirements for the community of the Hebrew people. But I want you to go down to verse 29. It was after 40 days and 40 nights. This is the second installment of the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses now comes down with the new commandments, the second edition. Same as the first, just a display of God's wonderful, amazing grace to sinful people like us. He comes down with the Ten Commandments, as they're called. And when he does come down, verse 29, with the two tablets in his hand, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. 
Now, while there are many things that we could draw from this passage, the third thing that I want to emphasize to you this morning is that we go from devastation because of the wonderful intercessory prayer of Moses to this idea of transformation. Moses is transformed. He's not aware of it, but his face is glowing. The word radiant, the Hebrew word literally means that that beams of light were shooting forth from his face. Now, verse 30 says, Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, that his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near to him. But that didn't stop Moses. He called them. And Aaron and the leaders of the community came to him, and he spoke to them. Verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking to them, then he put a veil over his face. That's interesting. He comes down, he's not aware that his face is glowing until someone tells him, and the Israelites are afraid, but he calls them in and he speaks to them with a glowing face, light shooting forth. He somehow absorbed the glory of God and now it was shining. And once it was done, he put a veil over his face. And this is the process because it's repeated again. Verse 34, he goes into the presence of God, takes the veil off. When he comes out, he speaks to the people. When he's done speaking... Verse 35, he puts the veil back on again. Why did he put a veil over his face? Well, the common answer is because the people were afraid. But I find that strange because he spoke to the people and it wasn't until he was done speaking to them that he veils his face. Paul gives us the answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn there just for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul takes this Old Testament story to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we've seen Paul do again and again from Exodus. And he says in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, if the ministry, and I have a slightly different translation, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, what are we talking about? Ten Commandments, right? If that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because the glory of his countenance, which, by the way, was fading. There's a hint. If that ministry was glorious, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit be glorious? If the old covenant under Moses Written on stone, the Ten Commandments brought glory. How much more will the new covenant under Jesus Christ, the gospel, bring glory? That's Paul's story. He says, by the way, verse 13, Moses put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel would not gaze at the glory that was fading. Now, Moses was one of the meekest men who ever lived in the face of the earth, Numbers 12, 3 says. But I have to wonder why he did this. Was it because he didn't want the people to see that that glory once upon him was fading away? Who wants to follow a leader who's fading? Who wants to attach their wagon to something that is vanishing? And so Paul takes that situation and he says, I want you to know that even from the get-go, although it was glorious, the old covenant was on the way out. It was never to be permanent. 
And he also says, verse 15, and he kind of flips the metaphor a little bit, even to this day when Moses is read in the synagogues, there's a veil over the hearts of the Jews. They don't see in the Old Testament the person of Christ, verse 14. And the only way to get rid of that veil is to believe upon Christ. He says now, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Get this. Verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Another translation puts it like this, but we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And when we do, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. What does that mean? Well, you see, they would read the Old Testament scriptures, but there was a veil, and they couldn't see how glorious God was. They couldn't see the gospel and grace in Christ. But the veil's been taken away from us, and when we read the scriptures, we see the glory of our Savior. When we take a communion service, we see the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. We see grace and acceptance and mercy and abounding goodness and love for those who turn and trust the Savior. And when we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, that glory is stamped upon us. The difference is Moses just reflected the glory of God and it was fading. You and I radiate the glory of God from our soul because Christ is in us. And so if, if we want to get rid of this sense of abandonment, go to the scriptures. Study the word until you understand his ways and until you see his glory. Let that be your prayer and let nothing stop you. Don't go forth until he goes with you and until the glory of God captures your heart. I don't know if you've seen some of these glowing stars, these plastic stars that are so treated that when they're exposed to light, they somehow absorb the light. Kids put them in the room, you turn off the light, and it looks like stars in the night sky. Apparently this is a process of photoluminescence it says that there is this emission of light from a molecule or atom that has been absorbed by this electromagnetic energy I have no idea what that means but it sounds good apparently that's what happens the the plastic treated in such a way can absorb the light for a brief period of time and then when you go in in the morning nothing's glowing as we spend time with Christ, the glory of God changes us, and we begin to glow. But we've got to continue to come into his presence, or the glow will be gone. It's not the new covenant that loses its glory. It's the fact that if we're not in direct relationship with him, we can lose that presence 
that glory. And that's exactly what God wants us to have. I like the way Warren Wiersbe puts it. This is why Christians should read their Bibles, why they should meditate on it and obey it. Because when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, he or she is transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. And that's what it's all about. The best remedy for a broken heart is a fresh vision of the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning as we leave this place that the glow of the gospel, that the glory of God revealed in the cross, that the mercy and grace and goodness of God proclaimed in this communion service, and even the grace that comes, as we've seen from the book of Exodus, might so change our thinking that we will see you and your glory will change us. In Jesus' name.